0: grace, and peace to you in Jesus' name, friends. Amen. The book of Revelation. Intimidating stuff. I've preached at this point as a pastor for a little over two years now, over a hundred sermons, and yet I've only before today preached on Revelation once before. I've mentioned Revelation, I've brought Revelation in, but it's rarely been a text that I've chosen to preach on. Because without a a good handle on the rest of scripture, Revelation, frankly, is confusing. And so to preach on Revelation, I have to assume that we've already got a lot of background knowledge, biblical background knowledge at hand for us to get into that book. Because Revelation is correctly placed as the last of the books of the Bible. And if you're going to read Revelation, you should read it, maybe not as the very last of the books, right? You don't have to when you maybe start reading the Bible for the first time, go from Genesis all the way to Revelation in that exact order. I would even suggest start in the middle. Start with the Gospels, the four books about Jesus, then work your way back to the front, and then, after that, work to the end of the book. Regardless, if you want to read Revelation, you need to have your feet solidly, firmly planted in Uh, Two ways. One, you need to have your feet solidly planted on the story that the Bible tells, the narrative that begins with the beginning of the world, that traces its way through world history, that finds its turning point in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, the God-become-flesh, and the spread of the message he proclaimed. One foot firmly planted on that story, the various arcs, the characters within it, the things that happen in that story that the Bible recounts, And then the other foot you need solidly planted on the answers to the questions that we ask prompted by that story. Questions like, who is this Jesus? Who is God? Who are we? How does God interact with us? The answer to those questions and other questions that may come up are given in that story. And we call those answers doctrines, the teachings of Christianity. You need one foot grounded on that story. You need the other foot grounded on those teachings. If you don't feel like you're very confident on the story, if you don't feel solidly planted on the teachings, then here's something I want you to understand. It's okay. Revelation can actually wait. Because here's something else I'm going to assert for you. When you come to Revelation with that grounding, you find that there's nothing taught in it which isn't already taught somewhere else in Scripture. No new Doctrines, to use that word again, are introduced in Revelation. Yeah, you could say that in a sense there's new information, because there are new pictures of future events, new perspectives given on things which were already warned about, but the book of Revelation is fundamentally an epilogue. You don't introduce new characters in an epilogue. You don't introduce a new conflict. Revelation just gives a new uh, illustrative perspective on things about which we are already told in other portions of the Bible. And, Revelation, here's another misconception about it, Revelation is not a book solely about the future. When John wrote it, he said that this vision was given by him by Jesus to him to show John, this is from the very first verse of the book, what must soon take place. Soon. See, Revelation was already occurring at the end of John's life, 2,000 years ago. It's continued To occur over these past two millennia, it will occur until Jesus returns. So after we wrap up our Sunday Bible study on the Pharisees, we're going to study some of Revelation. And I don't intend today to do a ton of exposition on Revelation as a larger book. If you want a little Revelation teaching today, you should check out the helpful outline of the book that's in your service folder there. Today, I'm going to focus specifically on the verses we heard in our second reading, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. In particular, I want to talk about the part where you heard frustrated people urging a despot to shed blood. I'm not talking about our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 14. We heard that happening there, of course. We heard this disgruntled autocrat, Herod and Herodias, his sister-in-law turned wife. Their relationship is actually even more tangled than that, but I don't have time to get into it this morning. Uh, These two get frustrated because John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, not the same John who recorded Revelation... He won't stop publicly and privately condemning their sinful relationship. So this Herod, who is better known to history as Herod Antipas, arrests John. And he went back and forth for a long time on whether or not he was going to kill him until one day his stepdaughter so thrilled him with a striptease at a party that Herod was willing to let John die. It's worth noting here that the Bible recounts some truly messed up stories. Our lives, with all their sinful messes, are not All that surprising to our gracious God. Of course, Herod wasn't really doing anything special or new. He was just following in that grand tradition of dictators and strongmen all throughout history, wherein they murder those who would contradict the big man. In the Roman Empire, we had Sulla and Marius and Caligula. In China, we had Dong Zhuo in the classical era and Mao in the the modern era. We had Idi Amin and Stalin and Pinochet. Herod was no special case. In fact, his reluctance to kill John in the first place we should probably note as remarkable self-control from someone who could essentially act with impunity. We call these kinds of rulers despots, generally, this kind of ruthless, unprincipled autocrat. But the word despot itself is originally just a Greek word that had no negative connotation. In fact, it's the very word that addresses God in our second reading. Your English Bible read this way, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true until you avenge our blood? That title, Sovereign Lord, is just one Greek word, despotes, despot. I'm going to give you a little translation philosophy around that word. So the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bible, was written in Hebrew. The New Testament, the latter third, roughly, was written in Greek. Before the New Testament was written the old testament was translated from greek, from hebrew into greek and that translation was called the septuagint and in the septuagint a particular hebrew name for god yahweh sabaoth the god of armies the lord of armies was translated into greek simply as despot that hebrew title denoted god as the one who commands the angelic armies of heaven he's the commander in chief of the celestial armies he's the one who administers control over the unseen spirits whom the Bible promises are continually looking after you. The mission of Heaven's Army is very simple, to serve and protect his people, the Christian church. As the book of Hebrews says, all angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So Sovereign Lord is one traditional translation of that Hebrew title. Some newer Bible translations render it Lord Almighty. Some older ones like the King James, Lord of Hosts. It's this name, in particular, which John hears spoken in heaven, which he records here as despotes, sovereign lord, lord of hosts, god of heaven's armies, commander-in-chief of the greatest fighting force the universe will ever know. That's the God to whom these people John sees are crying out. So who are these people? And what is it they want God to do? John identifies them for us in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. The fifth seal. So one of John's visions in Revelation involves Jesus breaking open seven seals on a scroll to unravel it. The scroll represents knowledge of the future. And the seals, when they are opened, produce visions of distant conflict, of conflict close to home, of economic distress, of death, of persecuted Christians, of natural disaster, and of God's silence. These seven seals are the seals on the future and what we learn is then that we will see these things before the world's end indeed that they have always been a part of our world conflicts and famines the persecution of God's people natural disaster and God's apparent silence in the face of it all what we learn from that vision is that without Jesus we will only ever see those things The true future, the future in which Christ will return as the victor over sin, death, and the devil, that future would be hidden from us behind these seals. Only Jesus can break open these seals and show us the victory coming behind them. Again, I don't want to talk about Revelation as a larger book this morning. I'm focusing on these verses, so I want to focus on this particular seal that's opened here, this fifth seal. And one thing that can block our vision of the future is persecution of God's people. When we suffer, or when we see other Christians suffering, such troubles can cause us to doubt God's promises. So we need Jesus to open this seal here. We need God's suffering servant to show us that there's a future behind persecution. We need the Savior who rose on Easter with holes in his hands and feet and side to assure us that we can face ridicule and rejection and scorn and abuse with joy and confidence. But it still hurts. And so, what John hears is those saints who have passed on from this veil of tears, whose persecutions have ended, sometimes with their own deaths, they're shown crying out to God, When will you make good on your promise? We heard what that promise was in our first reading from Deuteronomy. God will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies. The saints in heaven are just asking, When, Lord, when are you going to take a leaf out of the book of all these other despots and make heads roll? That kind of language can unsettle Christians, because we know that we are personally each called as followers of God to live lives characterized by meekness, by humility, by gentleness, by love. How can that possibly interact with a God who promises to make his arrows drunk with blood while his sword devours flesh? How can his people called to be one way and God seem to be a very different way? We may have trouble understanding this as modern Westerners who almost never face real persecution. Right, because sure, somebody may reject my invitation to church. Someone may call me something like a homophobe for my beliefs about human sexuality. But thanks be to God that we do not live in a place where we regularly need to fear the possibility that our church will be burned down, that our Bibles will be confiscated. Now, the more present dangers for us, far and away, are that our churches sit half-empty or that our Bibles go unopened. This is not so in every place. In fact, most months you can read stories in the Forward in Christ magazine about the hardships that our global brothers and sisters face. The article that starts on page 7 this month, in fact, doesn't even use the name of the country spelled C-H-I-N-A because the details in it could lead to trouble for underground Christians there. This is the crux of the complaint of these souls under heaven's altar. They lived as they were called to live, meekly, humbly, gently, lovingly, and in return, they were persecuted, rejected, sometimes killed. So will God do anything about it? That's the question that drives the objection of these saints in heaven. Is God going to do something about it, or is his so-called mercy actually just apathy? Some despots in history have murdered for their own personal agendas. Pretty much all of them have. But the most successful, generally, they do so while convincing their group. A good despot always has to have a group that he's representing that they are under attack, that he will defend them from the ravening hordes threatening their way of life. It's a very seductive claim, as seductive as Salome's dance. And just like Salome's dance, this claim... Can make otherwise rational people clamor for the blood of their neighbors. Watch out for those who would manipulate you with such words. God does not murder out of self interest. There is nothing he stands to gain from such an action. Beyond that, and this is what sticks in our craw in particular, God does not often kill to protect his people. Not that he never has. A 185,000 Assyrian soldiers died in 701 BC before the gates of Jerusalem when God stepped in to protect his city. But throughout the Bible, we find this hard-to-swallow pill. God allows his people to suffer. He allows them to be persecuted and oppressed. He allows them to die. He's the worst despot ever. Well, of course he is by worldly standards. Because as Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He will not exercise his power as earthly despots do. Instead, God conforms his people through our sufferings to the image of his Son. Christ suffered. Christ was rejected. Christ died. So he warns his followers. John chapter 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So here's the answer those saints in heaven are given. They are given the white robes won for them by the Savior. Throughout the New Testament, this picture of a white robe denotes the status of righteousness in the eyes of God, which believers have through faith in Jesus. To believe in Jesus as your Savior, to turn away from relying on your works and your goodness, is to be clothed in Jesus' perfection. Through faith, God covers over your sin, your failure, your inability to earn forgiveness covers that all over with Jesus. So right now, by faith, you are wearing the white robe that John sees being given to these saints. And along with that white robe, there's a verbal answer given to them. They were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Again, the way God operates is so vastly different from earthly despots. Earthly despots go on the attack. Earthly despots invade. Earthly despots conquer. But God already rules. God is in control right now. He doesn't need to invade. He doesn't need to conquer. He doesn't need to attack. And that's what he makes clear by telling the saints in heaven until. That one little word says a whole lot. It says that God is in control. God knows when he's going to bring this present age to an end God's solution will not be an invasion a preemptive strike no God's solution will be the heavenly courtroom because he rules all things right now and just like any other earthly authority he can and he will call people to trial that they might answer for their transgressions this is why your white robe of faith that was given to you as a gift from your savior is so important Because you would not stand in that judgment. I would not stand in that judgment. You and I have far more in common with Herod and Herodias and Salome than with Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the standard by which God judges. Like Salome, we sin against God's design for human sexuality. Like Herodias, we mislead and scheme to get our ways. Like Herod, we misuse the power we have over others for our own comfort. So it's the last line of our first reading that's the most important there. God will make atonement for his land and people. God atones for us. God, who promised just before that to avenge and repay, will also atone. He will reconcile sinners to himself. He will offer his own life for rebels. He did so in the body of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain and is worthy to break open the seals, to open wide the future, face each day, Friends, face the hurt which will accompany your faith in Christ with that promise. Walk out of here today with your white robe on. Amen.